Hey, this is Catherine. The music that you just heard is by violinist Niku Chotoy, a Roma-Romanian violinist who's the teacher of today's guest, Ainita Kostash. That clip is from her upcoming documentary, Light Upon. Today's episode expands upon what we've been learning about Roma history, and Ainita has a lot to say. She is currently an ethnomusicology PhD student at Stanford. She's in Bucharest right now doing field work for her dissertation. And thanks for joining us despite the huge time difference. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to chat with you. She actually graduated. I think you graduated in 2012, right? Before me. Yeah. Yeah. So she graduated before me in college, but then she stayed for another year to be the music TA. And then she was the TA for my single music class that I took during my freshman year. Um, I think I was a bad student in co- during freshman year in college. Like I think I really improved junior senior year, but freshman year I don't think I was very good. So my apologies. I don't remember that. <laughs> and I remember you were in the orchestra, and I was the orchestra TA. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember you not coming to rehearsals and me having to call you and be like, "Where are oh, you?" Oh yeah, yeah, that was because <laughs> we were always low on chills. Yeah, that's you know. Yeah, that stressed me out because <laughs> I I came in and then I was doing orchestra and then I was also briefly 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 in choir and then i was also doing acapella and i was super stressed because i wanted to do everything but literally couldn't even manage my classes at that time so yeah too, yeah. too much performing but all of these years later i don't know eight years later something like that i recently saw you post some stuff on facebook about roma advocacy and the holocaust and that was around when i was starting this podcast project with paul so I reached out to you and yeah, I've been really looking forward to chatting you about this, especially as a peer. I'm also learning more about you because as as I just mentioned, we weren't actually classmates, right? It was just a very brief time. And yeah, I don't know that much about the Roma people and the Holocaust. So I'm interested and excited to learn about the history here. Yeah, this will basically be a live catch-up session for listeners. It might be a little bit more casual, but just to start off, what happened after college? <laughs> the first question that we usually ask. Yeah. Uh, were you always interested in Roma advocacy? If not, what happened? Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, it's I can dive like right into it. So after that year that I was teaching at Amherst, during that year, I applied for a Fulbright to Romania, sort of in that like, oh my God, what am I going to do after I graduate? Like I had already kind of delayed my life, you know, with the graduate TA thing. And then I needed to like actually figure something out. So I applied to the Fulbright during that year. And even that process was really interesting because I, you know, started at college and the ethnomusicologist on faculty, Jeffers, the first day of school, he asked me if I was interested in studying Roma music because he's an ethnomusicologist. And I had this freak out where I was like, how dare this person talk to me about wanting to study this music that I had never really studied. It was something that was Roma music in my family was something I heard a lot of stories about, but I was a Western classical violinist. And so I was really offended and ashamed that this professor 
was bringing up this kind of like personal, intimate music into an academic sphere. And then fast forward five years later, Jeffers is helping me draft this proposal to go to Romania and study Roma music. And so that in and of itself was already sort of a process of coming out about coming to terms with this identity of being Roma that I had basically rejected for 20 years or whatever up till that point. And that's a sort of inherited shame that a lot of Roma people have. And when I did end up finally in Romania and I met other Roma, their stories really reflected with mine. There was a lot of resonance in terms of that, like inherited shame that's passed down in families that obviously comes from a societal racism that then becomes internalized. But yeah, so that year was extremely formative for me because it was the first year that I sort of like assumed my ethnic identity in any sort of public sphere, even among just peers. And it was also the year that I learned that Roma were killed in the Holocaust. So as an American growing up in the U.S. and the U.S. education system, I never learned that Roma people, you know, my own ethnicity, were targeted by Nazis during the Holocaust. And so I came to this sort of startling realization when I was invited by a group of young Roma to go to Auschwitz for the commemoration. I think it was the 70th that year, the 70th commemoration of the liquidation of the Zigeunerlager, so the gypsy camp in Auschwitz. And so that was when I was invited to go to Auschwitz by a group of Roma, that was the first time that I learned that Roma were killed in the Holocaust. So you can imagine my sort of insane (laughs) shock. And also I became very critical of historical narratives at that point. You know, I started questioning, like, what are the conditions that allowed me to become a 23, 24-year-old person in the world who didn't know about their own ethnic persecution or the ethnic persecution of their own people? Yeah, I think that we're going to, throughout this conversation, I predict that we're going to have a lot of parallels between both of us. For listeners who don't know anything about me, because I'm not going to repeat my entire life story, you can find that on the pilot. But I think that there are going to be a lot of parallels because I similarly did not know that much about Korea or my ethnic history until similarly I went to Korea for the Fulbright right after graduation. And I didn't know what what I wanted to do with my life too. So um, that's a similar parallel to me. Just to dig into that a little bit. I was following you until you said that there is a sense of inherited shame in the Roma community. So just to dig into your Western upbringing, why were you rejecting your uh, ethnic history? For me, as a Korean American growing up in America, it wasn't really for any other reason other than I didn't want to be identified only because I was Korean, right? I was really following you when you said, how dare this person tell me to know something that is, why should I have to know that just because I am ethnically this, right? So I totally resonated with that, but I wasn't 100% sure about what you meant by the inherited shame. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also a question of uh, passing when it comes to Roma, So Roma identity as something that's not a legible identity, especially in the U.S., means that, but even in other contexts, like if a Roma person doesn't meet particular cultural indexes, which are pretty basic, like they have dark skin or they wear a certain kind of clothes, it's really easy for Roma people to pass. In some cases, I guess I wouldn't say it's really easy. And so because of that, I guess... I guess it's also tied to this historical reality of forced assimilation. So forced assimilation in communist Romania, where my parents 
grew up and were from, because my parents moved to the U.S. in 85, and I was born in the U.S., but they really experienced on their own skin this forced assimilation, which meant you couldn't speak the Roma language. There was all these policies of what's called Romanianization. So the government was trying to Romanianize the population a lot. And so what that really results in is a bunch of Roma people who are ashamed to show their culture publicly. And then just because my parents were transplanted into the U.S. doesn't mean that they don't take all of that with them. And so they did. When they moved overseas, they brought all of that shame and all of that baggage with them, which they passed on to my brother and I. I don't want to like demonize or villainize my parents in any way because I totally understand that when parents do this sort of thing, it's out of trying to like protect your kid. But I mean, I grew up knowing I was Roma the whole time. There was nothing that was like hidden from me. And my father in particular, he was very proud of being Roma, whereas my mom's not so much the same way. And that has to do probably with their individual relationships to their own ethnic identity. But it was sort of understood that you don't tell people this part of yourself. You know, as kids, we're like sponges and we just absorb all of these things. And I remember at an orchestra rehearsal, actually, my dad was talking to the director and he said something about being Roma. And my mom kind of like shushed him and was like, what are you doing? Don't talk about that. As a kid, I was probably like seven or eight or something like that. As a kid, you totally latch on to those memories and then they sort of inform your own understanding of your identity going forward. So there's a lot of little examples of how that kind of manifested which brought me to this point of having to come to terms with being Roma in public settings. Did that manifest itself in them explicitly telling you not to think about your ethnicity? I think it was really related to the Fulbright. And what's sad about it is that for me, I needed this sort of elite academic whatever legitimization in order to feel like, okay, now I can declare this thing, you know? Because I think if it hadn't been for the fact that I was going to Romania through this elite program, I probably wouldn't have been able to feel comfortable still saying that. Even now, when I say things publicly about being Roma, there's this little part of me that still struggles with that. Because I know it's not something that my mom would necessarily want me to be talking about. And I mean, she's really changed her opinion about this over the last eight years or whatever that I've been doing this sort of thing. But... It's been a process for both of us that we've been going through together. I feel like that's a huge change, right? I didn't have to go through the process of suddenly telling people I was Korean, right? So for you, was that a very conscious decision to, hey, from now on, I'm going to be more forward about my identity or... Yeah, it wasn't until until maybe like high school that I started even saying the word gypsy or Roma. But prior to that, like when I was a kid, I would just say I was Romanian and... People didn't really know what Romanians were, so that was fine. But as I got older, people started to sort of even question that, because I do have dark skin, and then people would ask me, well, you don't really look Eastern European. And so that story was falling apart. But I think it wasn't until high school that only with my very close circle of friends that I gave the further explanation. And at that point, I was using the word gypsy, which is now I've realized. And I mean, I always knew, but now I feel empowered to talk about the fact that the word gypsy is is a pejorative term and that 
the word Roma is the correct term to use when referring to the ethnicity. Just to finish up your timeline before we go into some details about what you've learned and the Holocaust. So where are you now in terms of understanding your history and being more deliberate in the words that you say and just feeling more educated about everything? I'm asking that question out of a similar situation where I went to Korea, realized there's this ocean of information that I knew nothing about, right? There's family separation, which is this uh, podcast. There's comfort woman. There's many, 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 many thousands of years of just being ransacked and being a small peninsula between China and Japan, right? So I still, I don't fully have my hands around that history. I'm obviously much further along than I was two, three years ago, but I was wondering where you saw yourself in that process. And I think that's not a process that really finishes. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think like I'm really grateful for everything I've been able to learn, especially about Roma history, especially considering how institutionalized the suppression of Roma history has been. You know, I was when I was reading up before this call, there's this amazing quote from Bell Hooks, and she's quoting somebody else. I think her name is Najiri. I can't remember her first name. But she talks about this institutionalization of ignorance of history and culture. And she says, so institutionalized is the ignorance of our history, our culture, our everyday existence that often we do not even know ourselves. And I just super resonated with it because that pretty much exactly describes my experience, that the fact that Roma history is so suppressed in schools, especially in Romania, but really just globally too, the fact that it is so suppressed made me be cut off from it. And so now it does feel really empowering to sort of be in this position where I can actually be part of writing that history. So especially in like the Romanian context, there's very few people who are doing work on the Roma Holocaust. And I don't do that much on slavery in Romania, but I know the people who are like the Roma historians who are working on writing the history of Roma enslavement on Romanian territory. And it just, it feels very validating. It feels very healing to be able to know the people who are doing that and then also be part of that process of bringing these histories to light that have been suppressed. As you were saying that, I was thinking about how similarly, at least in this podcast project where we are also trying to change general ignorance about history, right? Being in that position to do that, whether it's in a specific field as you are or in a general field like we're in, obviously it's very humbling because we don't know that, or at least I, I sometimes don't feel like I don't know that much. I always feel like I don't know that much, especially when you are suddenly thrust in a position where you have to change everything, <laughs> you know, all of these understandings. At the same time, it's the first time in history where people are doing that. So depending on how you look at it, it can feel overwhelming or it can feel very empowering. Well, and it's also really overwhelming because you feel like the stakes are so high. When it comes to, I can't obviously speak to your experience, but when it comes to Roma in the Romanian context and Europe sort of more broadly, there are still people who write Nazi slogans on videos of Roma music. I've gotten death threat messages when after there have been articles published about me in Romanian magazines that are things along the lines of, 
you filthy little gypsy, like, shut your mouth. All of you should be gassed directly on things that I've posted on my personal Facebook page. And so it is super overwhelming when you consider that the stakes are so high. You want to be able to really do something with those counter histories, you know, with those histories that are suppressed. It's like we're trying to change people's impressions of a minority that's been very misunderstood. And part of that misunderstanding comes from this ignorance of historical oppression. I think, yeah, it is in part, I mean, largely in part due to ignorance and institutionalized ignorance. I also feel like another part of it is that one of our responsibilities today in a globalized society is to manage all of this information and understand a lot more and a lot more dimensions, multifaceted identities than in previous generations where it was just, this is you, you are this thing, and everybody else is this other thing. These days, it's not as black and white. So I feel like for a lot of people, it's just, I don't want to deal with that. Why are you telling me to broaden my mind? And that is a very, very difficult thing for everybody, right? Like even academics, it's so hard for me to, uh, I'm not an academic, but for academics, it's very difficult to manage so much information. How can I know all of these histories? So I think that's also part of it. And figuring that out is our task these days. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think, yeah, when, when your individual world was smaller, you had sort of a civic responsibility to a smaller group of people because your kind of community was a little bit tighter. But now you're right, and I feel this too. It's like I need to understand the nuances of the Israeli-Palestine conflict extremely well. I need to understand all of these things. And in a way, I think that's really great, but I, I totally hear you. I think it's amazing that we have extended our community to this kind of global scope such that we do feel this civic obligation to more people, different identities, and your your horizon of understanding of the world is just so stretched. And I think that's actually one of the amazing things about globalization. It's making Roma trauma matter on a global scale in a way that it didn't before. And part of it is because people are moving and there are Roma showing up in like Berkeley, California. And there's people who need to be aware of what the history of this population is because they've suddenly showed up here. Yeah, going off of what you just said, I guess sometimes you do get angry at people who have posted terrible comments and are ignorant. At the same time, with that huge sudden speed of rapid globalization, people like you and me who are products of globalization, but really didn't understand themselves because of the world that we, quote unquote, used to live in. Understanding all of these identities matters a lot more for us and is entirely integrated into our understanding of ourselves. And when we did, you know, go to Romania or Korea, everything kind of clicked or began to click, I guess, where we started to understand a lot more. And because of that, obviously, when I talk to other people who have the same experience, even if they're not Korean, it makes a lot of sense. But for other people who have lived their whole life knowing everything about, not everything about themselves, but where they come from, I guess it's much harder to fathom why I have to understand other people's stories and identities. So uh, before we go into that rabbit hole, I just wanted to bring it back to actual history to do our civic duty of educating people. Um, I still am not 100% clear about why the Roma people were treated as, well, how does the quote-unquote inferiority of Roma people relate to Jews during the Holocaust? 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So Roma people have been in sort of European territory for 12 centuries. So they are a people who migrated from northern India. And pretty much upon their arrival to Europe, they were treated um, as this sort of exotic other. There are laws in um, England from like, I don't even know, maybe like the 15 or 1600s that talk about the impurity of Roma and like these conceptions of Roma as dirty. People thought if a Roma person touched them that they would become black. It was pretty racist stuff. And then, you know, leading up to the Holocaust, there were a lot of restrictions on on Roma movement because Roma, you know, part of the community was nomadic, so they moved around quite a bit. And during the, the Habsburg Empire, there were laws that were restricting Roma movement. And so it's this simultaneous sort of they're pushed out by society and then they're reprimanded for not assimilating. So they're always in this like limbo of, well, we don't accept you into the body politic because you look different, you dress different, you have all of these markers of difference that make you unassimilable into what we consider like white European identity. And then at the same time, they're being persecuted exactly for that reason that they are not assimilating. But I mean, this is the way that identity is constructed, right? Like, every identity needs a foil. So it's like a constitutive outside. And Roma have been the constitutive outsider for the European whiteness for centuries. So European whiteness has been constituted on, I guess to put it differently, on the existence of Roma in European territory. And so the Holocaust was really, all of that sort of coalesced into the moment of of, you know, state biopolitical war on these people. And so it wasn't like a sudden thing that Hitler went after the Jews and now we're going to go after the Roma too. It was a process to get there and Roma were always a part of it and they were always integral to, you know, to the persecution of these races um, during the Holocaust. So in Germany when, I think it was the 19, or the, it was the 19... 29 or 31 Olympics in Berlin, there was a Roma um, encampment. They were pulled out of Berlin and they were sent to this, you know, sort of concentration camp in Marzan. And this was one of the first things that happened during the Holocaust was putting these folks in a concentration camp. The persecution of Roma has, it was a really integral part of the Holocaust that's just so widely ignored um, and it's kind of shocking. If you look at the, the sort of historiography and the numbers, it's, it's pretty appalling when you think about how many people died and how we just don't talk about it at all. It's just, it's crazy to me. Is the reason for that because it was just assumed as, you know, the status quo that these people are inferior and neglected, so whatever happens to them doesn't matter? Was that just perpetuated, and is that the reason why those stories are all erased as opposed to Jews? I think that um, it's a really hard question to answer. I think that a lot of it has to do with sort of political power and also social and, and literal capital that Roma just have never had. So, you know, Roma in Romania were 
enslaved for 500 years, you know, and we think about how that affects a community. And we, you and I, can think to the African-American model and we think of all the ways that, okay, what does it mean to be a disenfranchised group and how does that affect you in the present? That kind of mindset and thinking doesn't, doesn't exist when it comes to Roma in Romania. The fact that Roma were enslaved, people don't understand that that's going to have these effects where their voices are so silenced that even after the persecution during the Holocaust, they had no they had no voice, they had no power to sort of appeal to. There weren't organizations that were Roma organizations to voice their needs or their desire for reparations or anything like that. It was just, you know, these folks were liberated from camps and then they were told to walk home. <laughs> like they weren't even provided transportation. A lot of people died just, you know, on the way back. And they were just in survival mode. For a lot of these people, it was just, how do I get to the next day and the next day? It was pure survival mode. They didn't have the luxury to sort of politically organize and fight for their rights or their desire for reparations, just given the sort of their status in society. Yeah, I think that gives a lot more context into this quote that I'm going to read that you posted on Facebook. It says... I mean, I guess the summary is that the Romani suffering was not simply eclipsed. It was systematically erased in the post-war period. And then it says that the survivors didn't qualify for restitution. They were ignored at the Nuremberg trials. Germany didn't formally recognize that there was a genocide until 1982. That makes a lot of sense, given what you just explained to me. Is it also because if the state or any other big, more powerful body recognized what they had done, would that have just detracted from their status in society. Like if I had mentioned Roma people as a political leader, would that just have compromised my career? Yeah, I think that there's another like aspect of this that I don't really talk about that much, but there's also this sort of like investment on the part of Jewish organizations to make the Holocaust a solely Jewish suffering. So that's also like one of the pieces of this. But I also think that what you're saying totally is true, especially even now. Like you see this in in like European contexts where saying something about Roma is only done by politicians when it's a very far-right perspective. And it's it's really done in order to win votes. So there's there was a politician in, uh, I think it was Alba Iulia in Romania, who um, had this big long quote about how he provided water to this Roma community. He did it in order to win their votes. I mean, it was just shameless. And then went into how Roma women should be sterilized. You know, here's this person who's basically saying, like, everything I do is to win votes. And then he's saying this thing about Roma. And it's in order to appeal to the racist people in his town to vote for him. And, you know, there's a lot of instances of this where it's seen as in the interest of the people. And so then politicians sort of reify these stereotypical ideas and then use them in this propaganda-esque way to win majority favor or whatever not at all different from what we are seeing in america <laughs> not at all different and it, it was kind of an obvious fact but i still find it really interesting when you went through the larger history and you explained how there is no real reason for the racism there is no real reason other than the fact that somebody has to be different from me that's just an ancient concept natural concept and to see that begin there but still perpetuate itself today 
day by day in our own country is just one of those parts of human nature that's pretty i think terrifying yeah and i think it's i think it's human nature but i also want to just underline that it's also um it's also really political like when agamben talks about this it's like in order for the sovereign to exercise his power he must create these divisions between people and so like when agamben talks about the holocaust he mentions roma but he's talking about jews and he's he's describing how there's the creation of the body politic which is like the majority people and then there's at the same time created the minority which he refers to as their life and like that means that that life is essentially expendable so it's sort of like in order for the sovereign in order for a state to have power and consolidate its power and define its power it creates these internal hierarchies within the nation and this has been you see this across history so it's natural for us to be like oh it's just in our you know nature to think this way but the role of ideology and the role of government in brainwashing and and controlling the way we think about ourselves in relationship to other people shouldn't be ignored it's a really really huge part of of that process mm-hmm. yeah i think that's very very true and also very very important to get the whole picture for that and the terrifying part for me though is what perpetuates those systems of which all of the intricacies really matter is that it is also in our nature to capitalize or pursue power through whatever it means. So going off of that, that makes us really angry. And there's a quote that you gave us about anger. <laughs> I think you posted and I I'm going to read it and then talk a little bit about it, but it's by do you know how to say her name? Carmen George? George. Uh, George. George. Okay. We'll leave it there. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> so she says Anger is a trigger for change in new mindsets. It is the only form by which our body becomes a weapon against those who possess material and symbolic power. And it is a collective form of protest that unites us Roma women. How does anger factor into your life? And then how does it factor into Roma culture, I guess, or newly emerging Roma culture? I don't know. Just to give my background on that and why I saw so many parallels as I was thinking about this episode is I discovered while I was in Korea that Korean culture is actually rooted in anger. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but there's a concept called han which is impossible to translate but it is just that anger or angst of suffering, generational ingrained in your blood suffering and desire to it's kind of like an underdog desire to get back and push for that. Yeah, and that concept is what fuels a lot of movies these days like Parasite and etc. But that was a really huge thing for me where i discovered oh there's no such thing as genetic anger you know but i just while i was in korea i thought oh i'm supposed to be angry that makes a lot of sense for a lot of the other aspects of our culture i am also kind of angry but coming to terms with that anger and what we can do about it uh, has been something i'm still thinking about but back to your coping or use of anger does it fuel what you do now yeah That's really that's really interesting that context um because I think when Carmen Carmen's a very good friend of mine she's the executive director of the only to my knowledge feminist Roma NGO in Romania and I think when she said that she was drawing on Audrey Lord the black feminist thinker who famously says my response to racism is anger and I think it just makes sense to anyone who has ever experienced racism sort of that visceral feeling of 
of just makes your blood boil, right? I think I think anger is the the second sort of step because the first experiences of racism I had, they made me feel shame. They really did affect me personally. And that's why I think it's so important to have solidarity with other people of your identity or other people, not necessarily of your identity, but who are also experiencing racism. Because through solidarity, then I feel like we can transform shame into anger. And then anger can be a catalyst for social change. Because it's this fury, it is like a fire that then you can use to actually do something with it. But in order to feel anger, that's already an important step because it means that you've been able to like depersonalize it in some way. When somebody says something racist to you, you no longer feel shame, you feel anger. And I think for me, that was like a really important part of my own personal process of coming to terms with my Roma identity was meeting other Roma women becoming in solidarity and sisterhood with them and then through that feeling like okay we can work to construct something together when you're alone it's just hard because you're just suffering in this solitary way when dealing with these really difficult things in a bit we're going to move into the article that you shared with me about finally we're going to get to actual family separation for people who are wondering if we were ever going to get to that we are going to get to that article, and I read it this morning. It's about a Roma family who is separated, separated by trying to cross the U.S. border. But to connect what we just talked about as a transition, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, where our relationship with anger is kind of being numbed by the sheer amount of technology and ads and social media, I think. And to connect things back to capitalism and structures of power, our emotions trigger us to share things or like things on social media, right? So journalism these days is not sensationalist, but capitalizing on our emotions. And for me, when I read this article this morning, obviously I was very, very angry. But after I shared it with a friend or two, that anger kind of subsides or is a little bit numbed because I have a lot of other articles to be angry about and and those angers also kind of fire up but then disappear really quickly after I share it or like it and then I move on to the next thing on my newsfeed. Yeah, so lately I've been thinking about how do we deal with that? How do you use anger in a more productive way? And how do you remain focused on that anger even if that anger is not something 100% related to you, right? It's much easier to remain angry about something that is your own identity. So yeah, I have no answer for that, but that's a topic that has been on my mind. So like using anger and what you did, you sent it to some people and that diffused your anger, which was really effective because then you shared this story with other people and it was for good reason that then you felt less anger because you were like, okay, I kind of did something maybe to bring awareness about this thing. But I also think using anger really efficiently. That's something I've learned in the last year through activism is for a long time, every single racist thing that ever happened, I would write a Facebook post about it. And then I read this quote from Toni Morrison, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, racism distracts you from your work. And so it's this idea that, you know, you have a thing to do, you have a job, I have a dissertation to write, like, I'm trying to construct history about Roma. And yet here I am every time a politician says something racist about Roma, wasting my day writing a response to it. And so I think there's a sort of third level to this shame and then anger. 
process, the third step for me has been how to channel that anger really effectively in ways that I'm still doing my work and I'm like really clear about what my mission is and like why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I think what you're describing is like a third stage of anger, which is more sustained and focused than just the, I need to get this out. I'm so mad at this person. I'm going to, I feel like that's the third stage where, you know, stage one is I want to punch this person in the face. (laughs) Stage two is I shouldn't punch that person in the face because that's not right. And I should do this other thing that's way more productive. And that's, I think, hopefully that emotion is easier to understand. But to get to the article, we could just start with your thoughts on it. Um, I guess basically to just kind of give the context a little bit, it's it's a, an article that was published in the New York Times. And when Eugene, you contacted me about it, this is the first thing I thought of because it's about a Roma boy who was the youngest, the youngest person, the youngest child separated from his family at the U.S. border. So his parents came through Mexico. So it was his parents and then his brother and Constantine, the baby, they were seeking asylum in the U.S. And so they came through Mexico and were trying to cross in Texas. And the mother and the older son never made it across the border because they got wind that the father and uh, Constantine, the baby, were detained. They were arrested when they tried to cross. And so at some point, somebody called their mother and said, you know, she shouldn't cross. So the mother went back to Romania. And when Vasile, the father, and Constantine were in custody, they separated the child from from the father, Vasile. And so Vasile was in a detention center, I think for maybe like two months. And then Constantine somehow ended up in Michigan in foster care. And Constantine was in foster care for five months. So he spent more of his life at that point. He was nine months old when he was finally returned to his family in Romania. He spent, you know, five months in foster care, which was more than he had spent with his own mother at that point. And so, yeah, the story is about a family who was seeking asylum in the U.S. And part of the reason was for ethnic persecution. And in the article, the mother, Florentina, it's mentioned that she was forcibly sterilized, which is a topic that, as sort of like a Roma women's issue topic, is something that's really widely not very recognized. Although there has been documentation of this, especially in the Czech Republic, there was a study that came out, I think, recently on the topic of of forced sterilization. Um, But that was just one of many sort of reasons that they were seeking asylum in the U.S. So how common is the story of this family? Are there a lot of Roma refugees or asylum seekers? Or is this an anomaly? I mean, I I can't give you like numbers. I'm not sure as kind of like how many Roma, especially from Romania, I don't know try to sort of illegally cross into the U.S. The phenomenon that's really common in Romania is that once that Romania was in the EU, a lot of parents would go try to work in uh, more Western countries, so like Germany or Italy, Spain. So this is kind of like the divided families effect of the effects of capitalism in Romania, etc., 
there are these folks who are leaving their children at home, sometimes in the care of grandparents, but sometimes just alone in their homes, and the parents are going outside to do menial labor or elderly care or field work, picking fruit, that kind of seasonal contingent labor. I think that's probably more more common than this particular story of trying to seek asylum in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And do you think that this story raised a lot of awareness for Roma people? Well, this probably biased because I follow you on Facebook, but it seems like there have been a lot of, or a lot more than you would expect, articles trying to uncover or unveil Roma history. Did this article, do you think, do a lot in the activist sphere? Do you think that's a trend in general for more Roma stories to be highlighted? I've definitely noticed in the last five or six years since I first came to Romania versus now, I think there is a lot more awareness, especially regarding the persecution of Roma during the Holocaust. And I think that that has more to do with the work of Roma NGOs, of Roma politicians, of of activists who are really vocal about these things. And I think it has less to do with this article. This article actually received a lot of negative. There was a, a counter article that was written in the Romanian press. It was a really stereotypical article that picked apart the family story and tried to argue that Florentina, the mother, was actually not sterilized. And it was this this big kerfuffle where they went to the hospital and got her medical records. and Yeah, that's what I thought that it was. Until you, That's why I was a little bit confused when you were retelling this story. But uh, continue. About yeah, that. so what happened was that this news outlet in Romania tried to sort of pick the story apart and say that a lot of the things weren't true. And one of the things that they hinged on really strongly was this issue of forced sterilization. And so they went to the hospital where Florentina was sterilized and they found the document that she signed that said, I agree with this procedure. The problem is, is that many times women are sterilized in a mental or physical state that they're not able to consciously consent. So Florentina signed that piece of paper when she was already cut open on an operating table after she had given birth to Constantin. So imagine a woman being in a hospital. She's all drugged up because she just had a baby and she's still open and they're like, hey, while we're here, sign this paper and we're going to do something else. This person didn't know what was happening. And there is a report about the document. I was mentioning this documented cases in the Czech Republic. There's a report that came out from the European Roma Rights Center really does kind of lay this out in terms of what are the situations in which Roma women are subject to forced sterilization. One of them is exactly what I had just described. You know, other ones are where the women are manipulated into signing this paperwork that they might not even be able to read because of illiteracy. There are other cases where women are coerced into signing sterilization forms because they're being threatened that their social assistance or social benefits will stop, or they are basically lied to and said, you're going to die if we don't do this procedure, which which isn't true. I think that makes a lot more sense. Because when I read the article this morning, 
there's the part where it says that she wasn't conscious enough to sign the forms and then she signed the forms and it glosses over the sterilization it just says oh this kind of happened but don't worry about it let's continue about the sad story that we are focused on so yeah that gives a lot of context yeah and it's just sad because this is just one mechanism of these kind of biopolitical measures that attack Roma life, like sterilization, it's just one of those. And it's been one historically. One of the archival documents that I cite in my dissertation about the Holocaust is this quote from a eugenicist who, in a book published in, I think, 1941, he writes about how Roma should be interned in forced labor camps their clothes should be changed and they should be shaved and sterilized. And then he says that within the first generation, we'll be rid of them. And so we don't realize that it's not just, oh, family planning and, oh, these women already have children. This is a mechanism of genocide that has been used historically. And so we need to really take seriously, you know, the stakes are very high. It's a very serious issue. And I think there needs to be more research done on that. In the Romanian context, the report I was talking about is from the Czech Republic, but I think it's something that is difficult to document. But I think through oral histories and interviews, there's a lot to be uncovered there. Before getting to the end and getting your last thoughts, I did want to read just a little bit of the article. After your explanation, I want to read less of the article. So I'm just going to read um, because I have to review it, I think. But there was one part where it says, Constantine has acclimated slowly. He's sensitive to loud noises and crowds make him cry, which is a problem, says his mother, because both are part of Roma culture. And then she says he's not the same as he would be if we had raised him. Obviously, that elicits a huge emotional response. But I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about Roma culture, what she means by that. And then also at the end, any additional thoughts or things that you think people should know? Yeah, I mean, I had highlighted that exact quote, too, because it's really heartbreaking to read that this child is unable to walk and hasn't talked yet. And that really underlined for me how this was a super traumatic thing for this baby. And so that sentence describes the effects of of trauma of the family separation not only for Constantine, but also for the other members of the family as well, but especially Constantine. I think that what she means by the fact that he's not acclimating to Roma culture, she means the sort of like loud music and it's very social. And so he was raised in an environment that was completely different. It was this quiet white suburban environment, which was not at all what his cultural heritage or what his his upbringing would have been like if he had been raised. And so that separation, being ripped away from your culture and your environment, I think that it all relates to this idea of the the effects of trauma, of separation. I think in terms of things I'd like people to take away from this episode, I mean, just in general, I very much welcomed the opportunity to talk to an American audience about these things because of the very widespread ignorance about the sheer fact that Roma are a people, especially given the sort of promulgation of stereotypes and almost positive stereotypes of Roma liberty or like the gypsy hippie and like all these formulations that are very inaccurate and don't take into account the fact that this is an ethnic people. 
that culture belongs to people's bodies and isn't just something that you can adopt because you put on like a dress with sparkles on it. The main thing that I try to like to blast out there is just, hey, we're people, we're real people. And our culture belongs to us. It's an ethnicity that was persecuted in the Holocaust. And we have this very vast history that we're starting to tell. I think that's a perfect place to end. Thanks so much for your time. And where can people find your music work somewhere? Or is there any like place where they can follow you and the work that you do? Yeah, I have stuff on YouTube, Instagram. I'm not so much on Twitter, but... I like add everyone on Facebook who adds me. So okay, so that's where you can find her, I guess, and we can add some links to uh, your work somewhere else after this. So yep, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the Divided Families podcast. If you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project, please follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. Thanks as always to Final Albert for the wonderful music and see you next time.